Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. Hello, folks, and welcome to the latest edition of the Global Weirding Podcast. <laughs> I've been, at least I've been thinking about renaming the Planetary Regeneration Podcast, which is a bit of a mouthful, the Global Weirding Podcast, thanks to uh, a listener and uh, longtime collaborator out there. Thanks, Brecht. Um, that, I think that's a pretty cool name. So anyway, contemplating a, a name change here. Uh, let me know what you think. Um, in this episode, I have the pleasure of hosting Amanda Joy Ravenhill, who's the executive director of the Buckminster Fuller Institute, a longtime collaborator, um, one of my go-to um, thought leaders and experts on the state of uh, climate science and solutions, one of the founders of the Drawdown Project, and an all-around brilliant an articulate woman um, and leader. So Amanda and I get into a lot of um, interesting, nuanced, and um, potentially, you know, I, I don't know what word I would use to describe it, but turbulent territory. We were talking about grief and violence and trauma, and we were talking about um, some of the nuances, pitfalls, and opportunities of the Black Lives Movement, uh, or maybe we would say more broadly, the social justice movement of which the Black Lives Matters, Black Lives Matters movement is um, supporting in such a big way to bring awareness and, you know, move policy um, in a way that I think both Amanda and I, broadly speaking, um, think is really important. Um, I, I get into some of the deep questions I've been having around um, yeah, for listeners who, who've been tuning in, um, it's come up in a couple of podcasts, just questions I have about approach and potential pitfalls related to how, how we're thinking about this together and how we're creating space and um, opportunity for different voices and whether or not we can use the, you know, as Amanda put it, use the tools of the master to to take down the master's house or if, if something else has to be happening here. So anyway, uh, I think that part was very interesting. We also get into trying to frame the, the historical arc we're in and this urgent moment in a, in a broader historical narrative and um, yeah, and so much more. So I'm always grateful to have Amanda on the show. Um, I'm actually hoping and inviting her to participate more often in the Planetary Regeneration Podcast, or perhaps uh, also known as the Global Weirding Podcast, um, will hopefully be having Amanda co-host with me more often, um, and just being able to dialogue and, and host folks together, uh, which is going to be really fun. So um, I hope you enjoy this episode. As always, please uh, share a like or a comment in your platform of choice, whether you're listening on Apple or Stitcher or SoundCloud or Spotify. Um, and please, you know, join us on uh, Telegram or soon in Discord if you'd like to have conversations, um, share questions and comments. I've been talking with several listeners who had some really insightful thoughts and comments and questions, and so I'm encouraging folks to, to write those up 
uh, long form if you like, uh, so that we can start generating um, threads of dialogue to weave into this larger shared, hopefully more coherent narrative around what humanity is becoming as we step into our uh, place and initiate ourselves or are initiated by the greater world into our role as a keystone species of this beautiful planet that we live on. So, uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing from you all. Have a beautiful day and hasta la regeneración siempre. All right. Welcome, Amanda, to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm so happy. We've been geeking out for the past 45 minutes um, on all sorts of the ins and outs and what have yous of the emerging movement for planetary regeneration and um, all the amazing work that you're doing at, at Buckminster Fuller Institute. And there's been a couple of, I, I guess, themes emerging from our conversation. And, and I'll just sort of list those out to ground to ground and then we can go wherever we want. Um, one of those was that you just said was Bucky Fuller's ideas of the mistake mystique and um, and his understanding about, uh, what is it? It's the, the what's procession. the- Procession. Yeah, procession coming mm-hmm. from, you know, the, the, the idea being that the, sometimes the most important effects of an action are to, 90 degree angle from where you where you're intending to go right yeah yeah that the side effect becomes the main effect if you look from a ecosystem or a larger context yeah which is really an interesting thing to hold and then the other theme that we've been talking a lot about is different ways of decision making and knowing and dialoguing and specifically talking about you know, I think in both of our worlds, there's this strong desire by a lot of really well-intentioned people to um, support indigenous peoples and indigenous lifeways and indigenous management to become a prominent part of like a global investment strategy, a global change-making strategy, global climate strategy, all these sorts of things, which is a really dynamic and challenging and beautiful opportunity for us to um, decolonize our approach and our minds and our strategies in order for that to happen in, in the right way. And uh, mm-hmm. so those are the themes that I, I'm just picking out that we just sort of were cycling around and weaving in and, in and out in different ways. So I just like lay those on the table and, and see where, with all of that, would, um, what's alive for you? Um, mm-hmm. Are those things coming up in, in other ways in your life and in BFI and um, in the yes. weirding moment of, of Corona and um, a beautiful movement for social justice? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What's alive for me the most right now is just, yeah, the, beautiful civil rights movement that's um, really blossoming after (laughs) building its plant for a really long time, finally flowering in a a way that's attracting more of us to it. Um, And yeah, just the importance of 
of humility and and being open to being neo-colonial, you know, acting in these more colonial ways um, and not even realizing it and then being open to that unlearning. Um, so I have an interesting, you know, um, family background in that all four of my grandparents were missionaries, very much intending to do good, uh, but intend, you know, best intentions uh, led to a lot of harm. Um, and, you know, going back to kind of procession, you know, if you're just trying to overtly kind of make an action and not looking to the unintended consequences of it, you can actually just be pushing harm around the system and sometimes at a higher order of magnitude. Look at Monsanto, whatever you want to think of them. They did have some intention to feed the world. Um, And in the process, we've lost significant amount of our topsoil and life and bacteria and so much um, cancer and, and toxins have been um, fed to life around the world in the process. And so how can we look at kind of those best intentions and see what are the side effects uh, and make sure that we're not just pushing harm around the system in the name of good. Um, so all four of my grandparents are missionaries and they had their own journey with that. Um, two of them in West Africa. And then my parents are anthropologists, kind of trying to right those wrongs a bit um, and going and just learning from these cultures and trying to, you know, celebrate and document. Um, But then they both ended up working in in international development, which has all of its kind of neocolonial ways and and very much knowing that, you know, 80% of USA dollars end up back in Americans' hands, you know, that there is a farce to it but still trying to do their best within it. And so, you know, and likewise end up pushing harm around the system in the name of good. And so I come with kind of the humility of like, what am I doing now? That seems like it's like the obvious great thing to do. Um, but I might not be looking at the side effects or, or, or the root causes too, in terms of systems thinking, it's not just side effects and, and downstream, but also upstream what's happening that's causing these things. So that's what I'm dedicated to is just always kind of trying to look around more and see the different angles uh, of what we're doing. So question for you. Um, that's beautiful. And I think really apropos on so many levels of what's moving and what's being asked of us as thinkers and doers. Um, is it, un, you know, is it do less harm or, 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 strive for harm-free ethic embedded in in your approach what is you know what's the right from your perspective right now without you know uh, I, no one will hold you to this right just like free form what are your thoughts about the right relationship to harm in, and how does that relate to bucky fuller's sort of um mistake mystique and 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 maybe just to push it a little further do you have any thoughts about the right way to distribute violence in the system hmm. uh, and like is are we striving for violence free or are we just striving for you know a particular distribution or access to like violence as a representation of agency in certain moments. Mm -hmm. Um, And, 
what does the natural world inform us about that layered question I just asked? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what came to mind. It's like, what, what is a living system understanding of the world? And there's always going to be kind of the decay and death part of the cycle of regeneration. Um, and if you look back at root causes, so much of our separation from nature has led us to this moment of this story of separation and like overly independent um, way of understanding the world um, that then, you know, feeds into why there's so much corruption and money in politics and, you know, avoidance of, of inner work and just so many of the root causes that have led us to this, um, this really perilous, fragile moment that we find ourselves in. Um, Buckminster Fuller wrote a, a chapter of one of his books and named it Mistake Mystique and talked very often about how it's through our mistakes and through, yeah, messing up and, and failing that we actually can learn. And he said, you can only learn more, you cannot learn less. And he said, overall, that's what the universe is. His kind of grand theory of everything, grand theory of the universe was that universe equals the metaphysical, that, that which we're knowing and understanding times the physical. The physical is limited, but the metaphysical continues to grow. And that's why the universe continues to grow is because of our understanding of it. And it's through failure that we also understand. So it's just kind of a different way of looking from the kind of Western industrialized way of like, you know, working towards progress and just like always making things better or good, which is obviously just from one observer bias point of view. Um, how, how, do you, how does that relate for you, that sort of concept of, and I mean, so there's a quote, there's a Terrence McKinnick quote that I really like, which is, um, as the surface area, no, as the volume of our knowledge increases, the surface area of our ignorance increases exponentially as well. Like, like because you can sort of see a sphere of knowledge expanding right and then mm -hmm. around that it's always going to have this like larger surface area of ignorance so how does that relate and how does how does this concept of unlearning um relate to it, like sort of increasing knowledge or awareness in this mm -hmm. kind of framework of i really like this framing of physical the, the physical and metaphysical and the interaction between the two mm -hmm. yeah yeah, Fuller spoke a lot to unlearning and the importance of getting over yesterday's, you know, wrong ways of thinking or our biases. He talked about um, every baby that's born is our ancestor in universe time, that they're born into a world of more knowing and more understanding, and they have to overcome less of um, yesterday's, you know, kind of false ways of understanding. Obviously, it's more complex than that, but overall, that's the arc. And I love that idea that we are constantly unlearning these kind of um, more, at least in Western industrialized society, like it seems that we're moving toward nuance and understanding from a more whole systems point of view. Obviously, there's some observer bias there of like what I am surrounded by. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I think the the unlearning piece is so, so critical and not something that we've been, you know, rewarding or, or uplifting um, very much in Western society. 
as of yet. Um, but I think with everything that's happening with um, dismantling racism and dismantling colonialism, there's, there's more of a trend towards it right now. Um, as the whole world is like in this kind of suspended animation diagram of, um, yeah, everything being turned upside down. I think people are really under, like doing meaning making in a different way. So let's talk about smashing the patriarchy. <laughs> yes, please. Um, can you smash the patriarchy and should you? <laughs> um, Two different questions. Right. Maybe interconnected. Right. <clears throat> I guess it depends on what you mean by smash. But it's probably, you know, you can't dismantle the master's tools master's house with his own tools so how can you do a kind of um you know daniel schmachtenberger talks about like you know we're in a win-lose gain dynamic but we need to move over to the win-win but we need to win in the win-lose dynamic in order to get over to the new one we need to at least tie we don't right. necessarily need to win right we just need to not lose right right yeah, yeah. so it's like how 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 can we navigate the old, you know, patriarchal way of understanding and use those same, some of those same tools and language, um, you know, mechanisms in order to tell the story of the new way. But I think the trick is like knowing which one, which paradigm we're speaking from. You know, if you look at Danella Meadows' 12 leverage points to intervene in the system, the top one is like being able to navigate from two different mindsets. Um, and I think that's something we should all be better trained in. Yeah, I, I mean, I, which one are we um, operating from? Um, I'll, I'll bring out a strange occult and esoteric uh, figure here, but um, um, Gurdjieff writes that humans are not conscious beings at all unless they can hold at least three different perspectives at the same time. That until, that until you can hold three different perspectives and manage your ableness to, to sort of like to be mm -hmm. seeing from three different perspectives at the same time, you are an automaton and actually subhuman. That, that, you know, you may have a human body and you may whatever, but you're just running an automatic program and have no consciousness. Wow. So like, like it's a disruptive, you know, and his, he's famous for being sort of like a disruptive, you know, like he yeah. said things just to incite disruption as part of his theory of change. So take, take it with that understanding. Like his intention mm -hmm. was to be like, you're not conscious. You can't even see from two perspectives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I've always, I, I reflect on that a lot because I feel like sometimes I can do that, but a lot of times I can't. Mm. A lot of times and I what are what are moments where you feel like you can like what does that feel like when you are holding more than one Well, I mean there's sort of an increase of care and compassion because because that's the the somatic experience of seeing through a non-habitual lens it, like because knowledge <coughs> excuse me, it's not an intellectual exercise, right? It's, it's the, the ability to be, the, the ability to exercise ableness to see from a different perspective and to actually see is a very, I mean, 
in a way, it, it's something that humans, I think, are uniquely suited to because we actually can do that. It, we actually, and this is where I think, I actually, this is where I think the postmodern woke social justice left is totally fucking up and, and in danger, and, 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 and we're in great danger of some, of the, the great opportunity here to transform is in danger of collapsing on itself and turning mm. into a very scary thing mm. where, where the singular perspective of like pure relativism and pure plurality and, and all the sort of like the mean green meme and spiral dynamics sort of takes over and enforces, you know, thought control on people. Um, <clears throat> because they're not able to see things from the other side's perspective. Mm, yeah. There's not an ableness to like, wait, maybe there's something that's, like, what is it? How do we put ourselves in each other's shoes and, and be able to really embrace, you know, why so many people are are why so many people resonate with and maybe even love a lip like a capital capital l liberal or neoliberal um approach to governing society and when we just like issue it and are unable to see from that perspective in the conversation, I, honestly, I don't think we're doing a good job of being postmodern thinkers, A. Mm -hmm. I don't mm -hmm. think that, that, that there's like a full embodiment even of the, of the ethos and philosophy that the movement maybe is even stemming from in a way. And B, I just think it's poor, it's, it's like it's just poor strategy because it just, I guess, you know, when I earlier I asked, can we or should we smash the patriarchy? I'm opinionated about that. I think that, and you, you said what I resonate with, which is you can't use, the, the patriarchy is built to smash things. So you can't smash it because that's what it wants. Right. And that's an Audre Lorde quote too, the, um, who's an amazing writer and poet who I've gotten really into this year. Um, just in my explorations of social justice and getting to know the civil rights history more, mm. um, which I think we all need to do. We all, especially as Americans, need to um, know what this country has been built on the last 400 years of, yeah, genocide and racism and all the things. Um, but, and there's just so much, there's so much goodness there to explore into. Um, well, that's the, the, I agree. And I mean, it's interesting, I, I find myself I, I sort of sometimes feel like I'm like a voice in the wilderness on this. I think, I mean, I, it's unequivocal and factual that the United States was built on genocide and chattel slavery and that different people in power um, have fought tooth and nail and struggled with all of the means at their disposal, political and financial and violent to maintain control, <laughs> that's true. At the same time, the, 
it's also equally true that the establishment of a checks and balances, enlightenment style, capital L liberal market democracy has made, has like formalized that struggle and moved it into a direction where, where now we're benefiting, where, where peoples who were oppressed um, don't, need to be anymore and there are ways there there are ways they still are and there are ways they aren't and there's cultural issues and there's structural issues and there's economic issues and there's complex but to me none of that can be appropriately like like the only way to be able to take to be able to see from multiple perspectives within that is to Mm -hmm. zoom out ten thousand years Mm. and to contextualize the fact that chattel slavery has been an institution for 10,000 years. Mm. And that it is not uniquely an American thing that a civilization was built on slavery. Mm-hmm. That's an artifact of civilization, period. Mm-hmm. There's never... The, the, the number of civilizations that weren't built on chattel slavery are an outlier at best. You know, they're, they're, they're the exception to the rule at, at best. And so, at least for me, that enables me to have a significantly higher degree of compassion around the, in quotes, hypocrisy of, you know, like Thomas Jefferson or something, who, who sort of like, you know, who was a slave owner, but also was, you know, spoke against it and tried to create a system where maybe it would not be there it's just like, oh, I can understand, you know, it wasn't just like he, because I can resonate that in my life. I can identify in my own life. I dedicate all of my time and attention to fighting for planetary regeneration and a stable climate and, and doing that in a social just way. At mm-hmm. the same time, I still shop at Amazon. Sometimes I get on airplanes. I have an internal combustion vehicle. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a hypocrite. Mm-hmm. But, it, but we're all hypocrites if we're genuinely trying to strive for more vir- virtue and a higher embodiment because we'll always be falling short of that. And so mm-hmm. there's sort of like this, there's something really important there for me in t- just in terms of like how we unpack it and how we approach it that's, that's the only way to not get into to, to not turn the, this into, like, I guess, maybe even a civil war or something. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I hope there's so much there to respond to. But I think just one thing that comes up is the um, just race relations and, and what has been created as, as structural racism, like, was, like, an intention to... to do a lot of things, but there's like this insidious nature of structural racism where it's like, it's subtle and we don't even realize how bad it is. And it's actually in some ways worse than slavery because it's hidden. Um, And we've been entrapped in it and we've been pawns in a game of like keeping the, you know, middle, middle class or whatever you want to call it, like separated through race so that the like oligarchy can continue 
you know, those with the most interests and the most kind of vested interest kind of being the government in the name of, of democracy. So there's, I don't know, there's something there to, to out that I think is really important right now and not to, not to just liken to last, to past things. Like there's something so horrific about, um, I'm not arguing with that. I, I think yeah. that that's right. I think that's right. But I, 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 and who am I, you know, I think what's, I think what's equally insidious and scary is that, you know, the propensity is right now to, instead of, a, instead of, outing and honoring and creating avenues for the, the grief and anger and pain and frustration of that mm-hmm. truth to, to sort of like flow and, mm-hmm. and for us to have complex conversations because, because that's not the only truth. Mm-hmm. That is a truth. Mm-hmm. And there are other truths as well. And so you can argue back and forth between structural oppression and, and cultural and, and, you know, Black Americans argue amongst themselves about this. This isn't mm-hmm. a, you know, um, I, I, I've been doing my best to sort of like listen to a lot of different perspectives here. And there is, there's a substantial, I listened to a really excellent, um, I thought really excellent, interesting conversation um, on the Dark Horse podcast, which I'd be interested in, you know, getting your thoughts about it at some point um which is uh brett weinstein's podcast who's the professor he's a professor that was uh, he was like removed from evergreen state by a violent antifa mob with baseball bats and he was also he was also a participant in in different civil rights actions when he was younger but he was like, you guys all need to calm down a little bit. And they were like, you're white and you're racist and you're white supremacist and the whole system's broken and, you know, science is bad and all this stuff. And they ran him out. And anyway, so there's an interesting backstory to how he got a platform. Now he's a platform. He just did the very interesting, I thought, a very interesting, he had a panel of, I think, eight, uh, you know, pretty prominent, maybe tending towards what we would call conservative, but all incredibly intelligent, black um, public intellectuals. You know, all these folks who are, you know, many of them were professors or writers or what have you. And a lot of them are, uh, I think one of the universal things is they tended towards a critique of Black Lives Matter. They tended towards a, like, whoa, so, th- so he, it was a, sele- there was a selection bias, which I'm just sort of like, I wish that he had gotten a couple of of, uh, of the folks who are like more firmly sort of like to act, to have a dialogue there, that would have been really beautiful. I haven't seen that mm-hmm. happen yet, but, mm-hmm. it, but it did create this sort of like opportunity to, 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 to listen to these folks and like hear their critique of what worries them about what's happening and where they think it's, it's off. And one of the things that I took away was that if you, I, I mean, no one's 
I mean, there are people arguing this, but I don't think, I, I mean, I don't think we need to argue it. No, we don't need to say structural racism isn't an important thing to address. Um, that's true, it is. Um, it's also, there's all these simultaneous truths. And I guess my question is without getting into them, because I don't want to like, I, I actually want to go back out and sort of ask more of a metacognitive question. How do we actually, in these times, in these moments, like exercise our ability to understand and engage with multiple perspectives, even ones that we completely, at a, in a knee-jerk way, disagree with? Mm -hmm. And how do, we, how do we do that with rigor? Because I think that's, what's, I think that's exactly what's not happening. And in, in the very movement that I'm also excited and passionate about seeing move, I think that it's not going to work if a critical mass of us can't like extract ourselves out from sort of like group, th group think and mob think and actually have, be able to have multiple perspectives simultaneously and be able to have hard conversations with one another. I think yeah. that that's a necessary capability. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think it comes to, or what it evokes in me is the, just the need for comfort and nuance, you know, and so much of like the environmental movement that you and I know so well has, has taken from that more kind of like overly simplistic and maybe like wanting to make everything kind of bite-sized um, way of understanding but then it has this backlash of people are like, I know recycling is not going to save the world. So like, why would yeah. I even do it? And solar um, panels. And like, what right. was this, what was this, um, Michael Moore produced some film. Planet of the Humans. Planet of the Humans calling out like the Bill mm -hmm. McKibben style. And, and, you know, I didn't watch it, but I, I read a couple, I read a couple reviews at some point I will. I'm sympathetic. I'm sympathetic to the thesis of Planet of the Humans. I'm also sympathetic. I, I also he don't. He made some blatant mistakes where he just got things wrong, which spoils the entire pod, unfortunately. But yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I didn't um, look. I, I mean, I didn't actually watch, but I'm sympathetic to the. I read. I have long time been like, man, that is not like we're not going to get ourselves out of this with renewable energy. Right. But even that statement watch watch out because there is that statement of like oh well trees aren't going to save us and it's like any one thing won't yes exactly. but like even exactly. just that statement you're like overly you know being myopic and well no i don't know i mean it's true we won't get ourselves out of this with renewable energy we also won't get ourselves out of this with trees we'll, we'll get ourselves out of this with with a with a transformation of the system that involves renewable energy and trees and soil and you know, and, 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 and social, you know, and educating mm -hmm. girls and women and, and mm -hmm. you know, and empowering indigenous people. Like there's a whole bunch of things that have to happen, as you know, like you've been leading that conversation. So mm -hmm. anyway, I am sympathetic to, but, but, but I think what you're saying is when, or, or I, I don't know you're saying this, but what I'm making of what you're saying is we can't, when we attack each other, instead of, inviting mm -hmm. consideration of like what about that it mm -hmm. actually becomes this like inter-movement fight right where people are right. like 
no, no, this fact, that fact. And they're all disconnected from a larger reality. It's just right. like, who cares about that little thing and this little thing? It misses this bigger point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hear so many people defining themselves based on being better than some other climate solution or some other um, philanthropic opportunity. And it's, <laughs> it's like exactly the mess that got us here in the first place is that othering and, and bettering and saying, you know, because I have these different privileges, you know, and these different advantages, you should pay attention to me. Um, well, but this isn't, so this is the heart of it, right? This is, mm-hmm. here we go. Mm-hmm. From an evolutionary stance, and, and I think, you know, um, um, Daniel Schmachtenberger and Forrest Landry um, are, are on to some, uh, I would agree with some of their conclusions that mm-hmm. I've come to separately. And there's other people who've come, you know, there's Dunbar's number, whatever. We're primates. Mm-hmm. We need an in-group. It's part of how we generate meaning and trust and we groom each other and we love each other and we mm-hmm. fight with each other and whatever. We create a family and a tribe. Right now we're identifying like, we identify our tribe with politics. And so we get, you know, and we identify our tribe with what our climate strategy is, or we identify our tribe with what our stance on social justice is, or, mm-hmm. you know, all of these different things. But we we do need, and this is like my initial question, like what's the right place for violence? Mm. There's some, do you ever read Ecotopia? Yes, and I'm reading Ecotopia Emerging right now. It is yeah, beautiful really, really fun to be in the prequel to Ecotopia of like how it was all built yeah. in this time when everything is upside down. I love Ernest it. Kallenbach. The first podcast interview I ever did was with Ernest Kallenbach. And incredible. And I lost the I I uh, I lost the recording before I could oh, darn. This, which was sad. And he's passed. But anyway, mm. uh, in in Ecotopia. Mm-hmm. If you remember, there's this, you know, there are these sort of like little tribal groups or whatever. They're all part of a bigger society and mm-hmm. they go and they like, and the men and whatever women want to participate, but it's like mostly young men who mm-hmm. do this, go and they have spears and they like fight with each other. Mm-hmm. They like get their fight out. Mm-hmm. You know? And then afterwards they have a big feast and they, you know, like hang out together and, you know, sometimes people you know, die or get hurt, but mostly not. Mm-hmm. But there's like a, you know, how, how do we, I guess my question is, how do we choose as a society to get our fight out? Because I actually think it's, it's not a tenable solution to just pretend like it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, there's so many beautiful, creative, artistic ways of doing it. martial arts arts. yeah i think it has to be collective i think it has to be collective and i think it has to be tied i guess my my hypothesis is we actually need to retie conscious outlets of you know of ritualized violence to Mm -hmm. to social groups somehow Mm -hmm. so that it it no longer so that people no longer because you can be doing martial arts and you know, paintball and participating in your low in like whatever, and you could still also still be identifying with some p- political thing that makes you feel like you need to be violent against another group. Yeah, I think 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if it's, there's a couple tricks to it. We want to make sure that we're being trauma informed. So there's a lot of us walking around with trauma of feeling like there's just so much supremacy, right? There's white supremacy. There's, you know, gender supremacy. There's even like artist supremacy. I find myself in sometimes I'm like, Oh, that person's like not expressing their art. Like, you know, I'm better than them because I'm more of an artist. Like, oh, so how can we get away from the supremacy part of having different in-groups and, and, and appreciate that like each to each their own kind of mode. And in doing so, also appreciate that there's generations and generations of trauma that we're all walking around with. And so as we, you know, create these modes for us to have kind of healthy competition or violence or whatever you want to call it, do so in a way that's ultimately healing too and acknowledging the, yeah, everything that we're walking around with and our sensitivities around it, which is, which is super tricky. I mean, what if it's the same, I guess I'm just, this is just a thought experiment, but what if it's healthy supremacy? I mean, because pride is, pride is important, right? Mm -hmm. We need to, it's part of, it is, you're absolutely correct in it, in it's part of the same tangle. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there is nothing more cocky and sort of like hilariously jaunty and mm-hmm. supreme than a young, intact indigenous man walking around like beautiful, beautiful and proud to be beautiful and mm-hmm. like proud to be representing the beauty of his people and to be the sort of like the one that's like doing that. And Mm -hmm. and I have to say, I think there's an element to that, that we, in our culture, maybe part of the problem is in like Western, especially Protestant culture, we try to flatten all of that. You know, everybody, Mm -hmm. you know, there's just like the individual, actually we, we pretend to be individualistic, but a lot of those more social scenarios, actually there's more individual expression. There's more like people express their pride and it doesn't have to lessen other people's pride. Right. Right. But I think pride and supremacy, like if you look at a living systems perspective, like I don't think the, the pride that a river would have would say I'm better than the trees. It would say like, it's, it's a reverence for the interdependence Maybe it, would, we, maybe it wouldn't. I don't know. Yeah. I can't tell what a river would say. <laughs> I mean, and, and if it did, who cares? Why we need rivers on our boards. Exactly. But, but if we did, if it did, does it matter? I mean, I, I guess that's what, I, I, I guess my hypothesis is less that supremacy is the problem, but that it's mm-hmm. a symptom. And mm-hmm. that it's a symptom of the propensity in our culture to try mm-hmm. to eradicate and flatten the ability mm-hmm. of individuals to express their pride in eccentric and esoteric or, or, or like outright ways to be like jaunty and mm-hmm. brag and tell stories about how awesome you are. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, yeah. you know, I did this and I conquered this dragon. Everybody knows it's a total bullshit story. The fish I caught was this big and it was this whole thing. And you know, that, you know, like the most successful people in Silicon Valley wear tennis shoes and jeans and, uh, you know, raggedy t-shirt 
and they express so so they end up their i guess what i'm saying is their their pride gets expressed in the what i, I guess what i'm I, maybe i'm saying is i think this is a hypothesis i think their it, their pride gets and supremacy gets expressed in in dom like in a shadow way through domination and control instead of just sort of like and it this sort of changes like people have started to jaunt around on the playa burning man right so there's an outlet a little bit in the culture which i think is probably good but still at the same time most people go back to their normal lives and they're then they're back in the sort of like expand my power because you know, and I don't know, maybe I'm wrong in correlating those two things. I have no idea, actually, but it's a thought that I have. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. I think queer culture obviously has a lot of pride with Pride Month and then also just, you know, coming out and the flamboyance of a lot of that um, culture. And I love, I love that tone of just like, yeah, of being proud of who you are and, and showing it. And I think we just have to acknowledge that we're like, we've been living in a context of an overabundance of kind of more of the like testosterone control, you know, competition vibes. Not to say that com competition is like obsolete, that we can't have it, but it should be within like a wider ocean of cooperation with like islands of competition instead of the other way around. Um, and, you know, Buckminster Fuller spoke a lot about how Darwin was mis misinterpreted as, you know, the survival of the fittest when it's really the survival of the fitness within your ecosystem, how much you give back mm -hmm. to your ecosystem that determines your survival and your evol evolution. And that just like underlying understanding is not propagated in a lot of our stories and in a lot of like what gets rewarded in our current culture. So there's just so much rewriting of that to do and how can we can do that through pride and through seeing the interdependence that fuels life that's like the basis of everything or ubuntu as they call it in southern africa i am because we are um, that's just so different than so many of the ways that we've been told the world makes sense um, well, and, and i think you're right another indigenous term that's really important for me and in, in grokking this concept is the quechua word aini which is the I mean, it's hard to explain shortly, but it's mm -hmm. reciprocity in quotes, but it's sort of mm -hmm. like, it's like non-linear out cooperate the competition or compete to be the most cooperative. The, the process of always trying to give more to the whole than you're mm -hmm. receiving and sort mm -hmm. of striving in that way and being proud about it. And that's mm -hmm. like, that's the foundation of a lot of intact societies is that you want to do your best. You are competing with each other to like be more giving, mm -hmm. which is the, the irony is that, 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 that they're, they're woven, the cooperativism and the competition we're, you know, we're striving, you know, it's like a tree. One way of looking at it is a tree is competing striving to get you know the most photosynthetic edge mm -hmm. 
so that they can feed the forest the most because all of those nutrients are getting pumped down and moved through mycelial networks and into other things and they're feeding the trees next door that didn't get up to the sun, mm -hmm. right? And when that tree goes, the other tree, basically they pump all of their sugars down before they die and they make it available for the rest of the forest, right? And then mm -hmm. people, then, then the other trees sprout up. And so anyway, there's like a really beautiful marriage there actually, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One reflection I've had over the years of, of studying Buckminster Fuller is like his, his geodesics and his synergetics, he calls it like his math is really a philosophy. He calls it the geometry of thinking. And one interpretation I have of it is like, he talks about tension and the, the, how much tension uh, over compression works in natural systems. Like if you look at our, our bodies, we have like biotensegrity, some people call it, right? Where like our bones aren't just like stacked and that's how we're walking. It's actually, we have all of these ligaments and tendons kind of holding us in tension and in place. Um, and the geodesic dome is very much like a, a dome of tension with these islanded moments of compression where the hubs, where the spokes come in and meet each other. And I think that's, you can kind of look to like compression as competition and tension as cooperation. Um, and we've kind of have it inverse in a lot of modern society, which is like, it's about competition, you know, uh, it's about competition. Yeah. And then like, you might have cooperation between like some in groups, when it really needs to be inverse where it's, we're all here to compete and to be generous and to give to one another and to share and within that, there might be moments of competition that like, that are really good engines of growth and, and more knowing. Um, yeah. Yeah, That's it's really interesting. Interpretations of, of Fuller's geometry of thinking. Well, I, I think Bucky Fuller is definitely somebody that we should all be reading more. And, and I, I especially think that how, how exciting it is to, to bring sort of a mathematical and technical engineering and scientific perspective to a lot of the problems, you know, especially the question of, I mean, what's interesting is over the past years, we've evolved our, um, we have been evolving what we compete on. Mm -hmm. So if you think just like, to, and I was sort of painting this story of like, hey, let's think 10,000 years at least, because that's our historical record. It probably is a much longer story than that, but we can kind of ground it in some semblance of historical understanding for 10,000 years or so, since the rise of agriculture, broadly speaking. Um, what we've competed on as a society has evolved and of late and it's gotten more and more abstract what we're competing about and that's that's transformed our social dynamics and so you know just to like off the top of my head without any rigor you know we, we started first competing uh, you know around land and, you know, the productivity of the land, essentially, we, you know, and priests and warriors and that whole dynamic of like ancient Sumeria. Um, 
And then, and it's been, that was the, the dominant driver for a very, really long time, like all the way up and through feudalism was it was kind of it was just kind of like a, a similar thing with different social organizational systems to try to like how can you secure land and feed yourself and what do we all need to think in order for that to work and for us to be organized in order to do that and it's sad that there's been a lot of violence in that story it's it's not a happy one in general although there's also a lot of beauty in there too sort of both maybe in equal measure and then recently we started competing around you know, like there's the joint stock money uh, corporate corporation and the the rise of monetary systems, and then all of a sudden, you know, and this is like the market maximalists and the ideo- ideology of the free market and whatnot really vaunt this fact. All of a sudden, we were competing and exercising, you know, sometimes violence around competition around accumulation of money, which is abstract, which means you don't necessarily have to go to war you can just compete. And so it, it transforms something. And that's where like Steven Pinker and other people are like, then violence goes down and all these things. And that may, be, that may be true, it may not be true. I don't know. It's an interesting story to consider. I, I guess I would ask, what should we be competing on right now? You know, like what would, I have my theories about that. I mean, in Region Network, we think we should all be competing to be the most regenerative stewards of the land. I was about to say, Earth, Earth Repair Olympics. <laughs> exactly. And that, that yeah. by creating mechanisms for us to be in a tribal competition that's place sourced, like mm-hmm. you have to, you can only do it in place. You have to do it in place and you have to learn the place and mm-hmm. you have to regenerate the soil and the biodiversity and you just got to make the ecosystem as thriving as possible. If we could anchor, if we could anchor, like retie the financial you know, competition and keep that kind of, you know, it's kind of like a nice level of abstraction in a way, <laughs> but re-anchor it to the land, um, well, that would be really powerful. But what are some other things that we should be competing on that we would, that would, you know, maybe p- p- like create the right field and focus so that we're coordinating and cooperating in order to compete for things that are meaningful and, mm-hmm. um, mutually beneficial mm-hmm. yeah one that comes to mind is just the the ethno diversity part of this and you know according to some analysis we're losing two languages a week mm-hmm. right now you know and that's a whole worldview a whole understanding of a unique genius you know of place um so what what if there's like an ethno diversity global olympics or competition of like how many languages can we save from the brink um and likewise like with that the songs and the understandings and the ways of being and yeah just all of that capital of of understanding the world and and um understanding one another like the the social side of it i think it's for whatever reason in the regenerative movement doesn't get as much airtime, even though we all like kind of speak to it. Um, I don't know if those of us who are attracted to the regenerative movement come more from like the soil side of things, but I just, I don't hear as many people, at least in my realm, talking about sociocracy and nonviolent communication and all of the, the kind of tools that we have to, to treat one another differently and how important that is to, to weave those two together. And 
in terms of ethno diversity, there's probably so much that we can learn from um, from these languages and ways of understanding that are becoming extinct. Yeah, totally. And ethno diversity, I think, relates so much to place, as you were saying. Mm -hmm. so, so that's why I. Honestly, that's why I have stopped. I mean, there was a point in my, I've, I've piloted organizations with sociocracy and holacracy and, you know, done NBC work. And honestly, in a certain level, both of those methodologies, I, I fall far short of what I think is probably called for and needed. It's, it's for maybe a different conversation, but mm -hmm. I, I've come to believe that it, in a way it's sort of the regenesis perspective, right? That it's by sourcing from place that we create the spaciousness for people to regenerate their ethno-cultural ancestral connections. Mm -hmm. um, because it 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 reconnects us with something that's much larger than us as humans. Mm -hmm. And it creates the right relationship between us small little human beings and our relationship with the bigger, greater than human world. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. And you can just like hear us slow down as we start to talk about it. It's like a different tone. And I get stuck sometimes because the urgency is so great that I, I want to be kind of like more like, like direct and I don't know. Yeah, more um, kind of like outward, like I have the solution, let's just go. Like if everyone in the world knew about compost, like the carbon cycle would be different. Um, and so I, I battle with that of like how much of my urgency is actually like, because I've you know, I'm of a more patriarchal system. And how can you slow down in order to understand because regener true regeneration takes time and is of place and is about observing and interacting first, permaculture principle, you know, it's about seeing and learning and also like our window of opportunity is so tiny. Our margin of error shrinks every day. You know, our potential to actually save the majority of life is just like things are so threadbare yeah so i battle with that how in that tension which i share and really resonate with how does the sort of voice of charles eisenstein strike you and you know hit you know what he's inviting us to consider and um, in his work on on climate, and I think speaking to that very tension between the perceived urgency and the strategy, and and, and the sort of like the fear driven strategy that urgency invites or demands versus a you know maybe a different approach of mm -hmm. uh, trust in the interbeing or something. I'm not quite sure exactly how I would. Um, I, I feel like I can clearly, uh, at least for me, I clearly hear his critique. I le I'm less clear on what his invitation actually leads to, but 
I, I'm just mm. curious how that strikes you. I mean, we actually, the two of us have an embodied experience of having witnessed Charles speak and then, then went on and sort of almost gave a counterpoint to him with, with David McConville. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm almost going back to that moment and thinking mm -hmm. of, yeah, just how, how, how does that land with you or change your thinking or not? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, we just had Charles on for our, um, our online course, Trim Tab Space Camp, which teaches people how to be better crew of Spaceship Earth. Um, and he was our first speaker this last go around with his Corona coronation uh, article. I think he does such a good job of, of helping people kind of zoom out and see the wider context and the larger you know, mythos and, and kind of paradigmatic level at which we're operating and how that system and understanding is what kind of creates the knock on effects of, you know, that story of separation creates all of these ways that we're kind of othering one another and, and creating a culture of control. Um, yeah, I think it's central to my, to like the tension and, and the battle that I have within me. Cause like, I know that and I want us to operate from a more nuanced, you know, whole systems, living system, you know, syntropic as Buckminster Fuller would call it frame of like we are constantly evolving towards more life that creates more life that you know um you know syntropy kind of being somewhat of an antonym of entropy of like we're evolving towards being more adaptable um resilient creatures and and cultures um I know that and I can feel it in my heart but then when it like comes to the day to the day I'm like we got to like move this carbon stat and obviously carbon, you know, when you manage for carbon, well, you're also moving water. And if you're doing it in a way that improves livelihoods, you're working with cultures and everything. Um, but I don't know. I just talking to earth system scientists from NASA and seeing the being here in Maine on an Island where like the coastline changed this year because of extreme weather and like, yeah, I mean, we might have to move a billion people by 2100, or maybe even faster. And like, that urgency just like kills me. I can't. It's really, it's, and it's hard to operate from because it's almost paralyzing and so scary. Mm. Um, and I'm just like, how do we, yes, we can't dismantle the master's house with his tools, but like, how can we? bring in the trickster to like make it seem like we're playing their game when in really out, you know, doing some sort of magic in this like very small moment that we have going forward. Yeah, totally. How, how can we do that? I know you have lots of ideas. Continue I'm to ask. <laughs> that's what, um, yeah. And, and maybe, I mean, gosh, there's so much there. Um, it's, Well, one thought that I had as you were talking is just like zooming back out to the 10,000 year story that we're on. Longer than that, but that's as long as I'm currently able to sort of like feel like I have a coherent narrative. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, maybe I could, I actually think I could do 40,000 years. And, but after, I think I could do a 40,000 year coherent narrative 
maybe even a million if I if I really start to like stretch back, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, at some point I'll have to tell you, I, I created this whole like, co-created with a, with a friend of mine, this whole myth of how the patriarchy was born, um, mm -hmm. c coming out of the, the, the evolutionary bottleneck um, after the, the big um, ice age event. I don't remember what it was called when um, the, when Africa radically changed its climate and the population of humans shrunk down to whatever it was, like a couple hundred humans or maybe a couple thousand humans, they were all down in the South African coast, right? Everybody was down there living on shellfish. Mm -hmm. And what happened there mm -hmm. in, in, in the process of that pressure cooking, what happened to put us on our trajectory? Anyway, it's a fun, uh, it was a fun art project for me. It felt like it was mm -hmm. meaningful and it felt like where where am I going with that? I'm how do we see ourselves in a larger journey? Maybe we're at peak individuation right mm -hmm. now. Maybe this is maybe you and I are experiencing peak isolation with all of the seeds of connectedness and relationship embedded in that moment, as we come down the slope of the curve, back down the other side. And you're just like seeing the sine wave of, in the, in the long time distant past of the, the neurocultural, spiritual connectedness of a beautiful, intelligent band of art-making, love-making, hunter-gatherers wandering the world, mm -hmm. completely part of it, and the connectedness of that. And then this arc all the way up through all of the crazy history and, and beauty and violence and drama and comedy that is the history of humanity uh, all uh, genius and despair all the way up to this moment where we're talking on zoom mm -hmm. through this artificial you know um, enslaved piece of matter that we didn't ask permission to turn into a computer and the people who put their lives into it and all of the pain that embodies into this metal and plastic and silicon and conductors and whatnot that we're at like this peak isolation moment and that how long is it going to take us because you know to, to, for that wave to move back down again and um and can we relax into the like you know even if the rhythm changes and the wave you know and and you know and do we want the wave to get more bouncy Maybe not, you know, and how do we just sort of think about how this all works and ask ourselves, how long is this going to take and what do we do in the meantime as we slide back down into interconnectedness and mm -hmm. relationship? Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just a, it's just a thought that was emerging yeah. for me as you were talking and the mm -hmm. grief, the grief that I was hearing in your voice about what it's like to be a human at, at sort of like peak disconnection from the world and the yearning we all have to be connected and how that expresses in our 
attachment to causes and it expresses in our attachment to politics and it expresses in our um, you know supremacy mm-hmm. <laughs> tactics and all of these things and like underlying that I, I I have the sense that there's sort of like you know a Joanna Macy or Martine Prechtel esque deep grief at the loss that we've all experienced ancestrally over the last long, 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 long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And just like all, all that is at risk of being lost too. I think that at least consciously is what gets me the most. Maybe it's because it's resonating subconsciously with all that we have already lost, but. Well, well, fuck that, Amanda. We shouldn't be sad about that. We should be pissed and we should do something. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) and aren't we? (laughs) We really like, like things that haven't been lost. Like that's where you're like, let's go fight for it. You know, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And we are. And we're inspiring others to come with us. Yeah, we can do like we could, you know, at that peak, if we're at that peak moment, we can, we can save all the seeds that are going to blossom into our long, beautiful slide back into, you know, Mm -hmm. human Gaian interconnectedness. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I guess just the, there's like this peril of, you know, Buckminster Fuller talked about, we built all the right tools for all the wrong reasons first, you know, so much of our technology has been driven by war and competition and, you know, the space age was the cold war, but now we have satellites to look at ecological state change Um, or, you know, gaming. So much of gaming is like war strategy. And then now we're using it for like improving mental health. There's so many cool ways that we're, um, kind of upcycling weaponry into livingry. Well, tell me about the gaming today. and mental health thing. I haven't heard of this. Oh, um, there's different ways to use video games basically to kind of um, help people get over different mental health challenges. Um, everything from like dementia to schizophrenia. Uh, there's ways to kind of like, kind of link is probably too generous of a word, but like the, super processor that is our brain to another computer and then like kind of rewire neural pathways so that we can become healthy again. Yeah. It's Bio- really exciting. Biofeedback kind of mm-hmm. where you're yeah. training new neuro neurological connections and then your brain trims the ones, the old ones late, you know, sort of like prunes the old ones back that might've been causing mm-hmm. behavioral yeah. psychological challenges. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there's all these ways that we're like using the weaponry and moving it into livingry. And I think it can all happen, you know, at the speed of thought faster than we can imagine. Um, and it is happening in a lot of ways. And also, I don't know, I guess I like partially carry a burden of knowing climate science in a way that like most people don't because it's such a hyper object it's so hard to hold the whole thing and I have a huge heart and huge curiosity and have privilege to have access to resources and people and um, 
the climate is it, there's some baked in effects that we're just like we can't do anything about and i have a hard time communicating it because i don't want to add to the fear and the grief that leads to apathy that so many people are walking around with in their heart like when you really ask them so many people think we're already it's over in their heart's heart and so i don't want to add to that and then i'm also just like kind of a positive joyful person with the middle name joy um and so i just like i dance with that like I think I, and I think many of us in this movement just like, like you just like carry the burden on your shoulders and it's like, it's just so much. Um, yeah. But also like bringing out the anger, like Larry Kramer just died a couple of weeks ago who started the ACT UP um, gay rights um, AIDS activist movement in New York. He used anger so well, you know, he would scream plague, we're in a plague, you know, and just wake people up to just like how, you know, people were just not paying attention to the AIDS epidemic partially because of the social um, side of it, of it impacting the people experiencing homelessness and, um, and, and gay people. And he used anger so well. And I, I, I want to have more of that to like balance my joy with the anger and, and express the, yeah, the grief of, of just how much we have already lost and how much is at risk of being lost now. Um, also don't, <laughs> don't want to do it in a way that's not trauma informed. So there's the dance. What do you mean by trauma informed? It sounds like a, like if you're like, like a word that group, a group of people has come up with that has <laughs> a lot of meaning behind it that that I I could guess about what it means, but I'm not entirely sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can only share yeah what I how I use it, but basically, you know, there's there's ways that people are managing teams or otherwise communicating that can further perpetuate trauma or like burdens that people are carrying so you've done a lot of work with indigenous leaders um, and other people who are historically oppressed and marginalized if you're not relating to them in a way that is in you are informed of the trauma that they have been through then you can perpetuate that trauma by accident Mm -hmm. and so like you know asking too much of people further putting a burden on them from a position of kind of, you know, hierarchy in the system um, can actually just like replay that trauma, you know, which is all about like trauma is always looking for um, a way to like reify it to say like, Oh yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. And so if you're not trauma informed, you could be like, you know, triggering or hooking someone's past experience and just making it even more, um, you know, thick in their mind as a, as a recall. What's interesting here in that is, uh, I don't remember what the term is, but I, I don't remember where I read it now or, or listened to it. It may have actually been like a Tim Ferriss thing at some point and other people have thinking about it, but the concept of, post-traumatic there's the concept of post-traumatic stress and then there's the concept of post-traumatic transformation mm-hmm. where we can't actually avoid stress and mm-hmm. um and there's all these really interesting studies about 
different, you know, like when soldiers come back from war, some transform and turn into like really well-adjusted, like really impressive humans doing all sorts of good for the world or their, you know, themselves, et cetera, very disciplined. And some fall apart and sort of go into a cycle that is, that's, that's sort of like a, a relived stress cycle and being very reactive and whatnot. And like the, the question of why are there different responses to the stress? And is that disruption? And actually Carol Sanford, this is a big part of her teachings as well. You know, how do you consciously use disruption or stress in your life to catalyze a, a conscious transformation? at which you exercise your agency to choose the new state that you're going to inhabit, mm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and I just can't help thinking about that in terms of um, being trauma-informed mm -hmm. and, um, and, and what's the, re the right relationship between sort of, you know, sort of being conscious and, and at choice around how we navigate issues that re could recapitulate trauma cycles versus and or as well as making sure that people are in a place and have the support and have the tools so that when they experience recapitulation, they are able to use that to, to like bring themselves into a place that they've chosen to be in terms of how they relate to the world and how they relate to the trauma that, ex that they experience and what, that, what the meaning is of that. Mm -hmm. um, and and how important that is, I think, given the massive ancestral trauma, collective trauma experience that we're all walking with, which is, you know, which is maybe could be seen as beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, yeah. The story of survival. It's the story of survival. Yeah. Yeah. I had a powerful moment. Um, in this like biofeedback suit that my friend is, is innovating um, where I was thinking about all of the women in my lineage and, and, you know, thought about the like intergenerational trauma that I'm holding, but then on the flip of it felt the intergenerational gumption of like all of them at one point being told they were too big or too bright or standing up too tall and the, not the cowering, but the, like the standing up into that and, kind of yeah the that gumption and that resilience uh we, we're all carrying that with us too and yeah just that that notion that like we have what we need we've been training for this moment um and yeah to call on that is so powerful we're um, six billion live we're six billion years of un an unbroken lineage of life responding to trauma and overcoming it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And then as Buckminster Fuller said, this is our final exam to see if we can use everything that we've been given to. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, maybe it'll go on forever. There'll, you know, there'll be a final exam every year for, you know, forever. I, I, do, I do resonate with like, this is a big moment. I, I also, sometimes I question the sort of, you know, amanitize the eschaton end of days mm -hmm. somehow something special right now it's you know if you look back in history of especially of western civilization 
every generation has thought that it was the end for mm -hmm. one reason or another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But the, I mean, we both know this, the, the rate of destruction right now and exploitation is, is unprecedented. How many languages we're losing, how much, how many species we're losing. I, I'm not arguing with that, but, but yeah. exercising the ability to hold multiple perspectives, it's also equally true that every single generation in the history of Western civilization has had a reason to believe that it was the end. Right. Right. But I think ours is better. So I'm like an end of the world supremacist. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so how does that inform our culture? Like, just like, what does that mean that we've, I actually think that's one of the prime drivers of the type of action that will have oblique knock-on effects that we don't want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that, that's that's what has us running as a mm -hmm. culture. Mm -hmm. is, yeah. It, or or it's I don't know if that's what has us running, but it's part of it's part of the syndrome of mm -hmm. like we gotta go. It's about to end. We gotta go do something right now. We gotta go west. We gotta mm -hmm. take over that land. We gotta build that business we gotta do whatever it is because this thing is coming the end of days are coming the you know uh, anyway there's something really i think important for us to sort of like do an about face and and yeah yeah well i think one of the one of the funny paradoxes of this is like if you grief helps inform what you need to do right because then you start appreciating what we do have and what we are losing and if you look at biodiversity and ethnodiversity, there's, you know, an outsized um, kind of stewardship that's done by so many indigenous people in the world, protecting something like 80, 85% of our biodiversity. And so once you start to appreciate through grief, how much bio and ethnodiversity we're losing, there's actually a pretty simple solution of like, let's just give the people who are seeing the way you know, informed by ancient and indigenous knowing and also new technology to um, to teach us and to help us unlearn. And then also just like direct giving, you know, some of the stuff that's happening in the decolonizing wealth movement of, of moving kind of the decision making of where financial capital is is outlaid in the world. Um, back to the, the people who have uh, kind of this longer view and and are stewarding our biodiversity the best which is what we're doing with Regenerosity. Learn more at regenerosity.world. Um, but I'm re I am really excited to work with you on that project uh, going forward and just, yeah, see what we can learn and unlearn and then move capital stat um, to people who can make decisions in a different way than we can even imagine. Yeah, definitely. Really, um, yeah, really grateful for this conversation and all of your work, Amanda. And um Definitely excited to see what the, we haven't really mentioned it directly, but uh, until just now, but what the regenerosity um, approach um, can bring. I think it's super important. And, and that sort of just sort of just stop and value the ethno, the, the ethno biodiversity stewards, which mm -hmm. is, which is the reminder that we are both part of the biological <laughs> diversity of the planet and and diminishing it 
and capable of increasing it. And there's people who are embodying uh, a path at a long wisdom tradition about how to interact in a, in a way that's, yeah, mm -hmm. the, the, in a way that seems to be the way we, we all need to be working towards. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, it's less, it's, it's funny as you're saying that it's, it's so much less of an action than mm -hmm. it is a relationship and mm -hmm. a slowing down and mm -hmm. a recontextualization and uh, a humble sort of just honoring instead of running off and creating, you know, direct air capture machines or, you know, doing this or doing that. There is actually, there are several paths like this one that you're inviting us to think about around mm -hmm. just valuing and honoring um, ancestral indigenous life ways and stewardship um, mm -hmm. and sovereignty and just mm -hmm. sort of like that just being a pillar and a fundamental thing it's it is much less of a doing and much more of a being um strategy so mm -hmm. it's a you know maybe a, a good way to i i think you may need to um wrap up and move into the rest of your day so i think that's a beautiful place to leave it mm -hmm. yeah. thank, thanks and for getting talk more about that. it on our next installment yeah that sounds good and I, i've been thinking about um I mean, I would love it if you wanted to do more regular um, conversations. And I also, also, I was also thinking maybe this would be a fun platform to share. And if you're interested in sort of co-hosting sometimes mm -hmm. or, or a lot, that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, I would love that. Cool. All right. Thank Thanks, you. Amanda. Be well. Be well. Mm -hmm. Bye. Bye.